Well, today we're beginning a new series, which I've entitled The Importance of Church. So we're going to start off by answering the question, what is church? What is church? The Greek word for church in the New Testament is ekklesia, and it means a, an assembly or community of believers in Jesus Christ. And so, you know, oftentimes we say, I'm going to church, you know, but the church is not a building. Uh, this building is not the church. The church is people, specifically not just anybody, but believers. Uh, and they, we often meet in a church in a particular location, in a church building. But in the New Testament, the word church, ecclesia, most often, almost always, refers to a local church. And a local church is a church in a specific geographic location, uh, such as the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, the church at Galatia, or whatever it may be. And so, in the Bible, how does someone become part of a local church? Well, someone becomes part of a local church by making two commitments. First of all, Obviously, you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're baptized in a local church, so there's the vertical dimension. And secondly, you commit yourself to a local group of people, a people in a particular area. And so the second commitment is to live out your faith with other believers. And so to be part of a local church, you have the vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with people in the area in which you live. And so in the New Testament, there really were no believers who were not part of a local church. If you became a believer, you were automatically added to the local church. Let's uh, look at the situation of church in America today. Uh, we're going to look at a 2000, some aspects of a 2016 report by the Christian pollster George Barna. In America today, if you can read that, 73% of adults say that they are Christians. They they identify with being a Christian in America. 20% of people in America um, have no faith. They say, you know, I, I don't believe in anything. I don't know if that's exactly atheist, but there's no particular faith that they identify with. And 6% identify with faiths other than a Christian faith. Now, 73%, three out of four, seems, seems pretty good until you begin to ask more questions. And so George uh, Barna asked the next question, how many of these self-identified Christians attend church at least once a month? And so that's a pretty low bar. I mean, at least once a month, it's kind of vague there. But the percentage of adults who claim to be Christian and attend church once a month uh, drops down to 31%. And on that slide, if you can read it, I can barely read it back there, uh, it's practicing Christians about 31%. So less than, well, the majority of people who claim to be Christian don't attend church even once a month. And so there's something, something wrong with that picture. You know, anybody can call themselves a Christian. I mean, you can call yourself whatever you want, but anybody can call themselves a Christian. But matters. what matters is what you believe and how you live out that belief. Now, if you ask adults whether they've made when Barna asked the first question, are you a Christian, it's just that word. Do you identify with Christian? He didn't identify or, or define what Christian was. Now, he went on to ask a more detailed question. He says, have you made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, confessing your sins and accepting him as Savior? When he asked that question, uh, the number dropped to 35%. Barna identifies those 
people in his terminology as being born again Christians. And so of, again, of people who claim to be Christian, 73%, only about half of those, 35%, uh, even claim to have been made a commitment to Jesus Christ uh, and having their sins forgiven. So finally, he asked this group of people an additional seven questions, really basic Bible questions to see how they would answer. The questions were, do you believe that Christians have a responsibility to share your faith, to share their faith. Uh, second question was, do you believe that Satan exists? Uh, next question was, do you believe that Jesus is sinless? Now, I, I don't have the details for that question, but more and more people believe that Jesus sinned. Now, if Jesus sinned, nothing makes sense anymore. Uh, you really can't be a Christian and believe Jesus sinned. Next question, is the Bible accurate? I mean, can we believe what the Bible says? Next question was, are people saved by grace, not works, as the Bible clearly teaches? And last, is God the creator and ruler of the universe? Really basic questions that, you know, a child raised in a Christian home at six should be able to answer those questions. And only 7% of adults answered those seven questions correctly. And those he labels as evangelical Christians. Now that term is tossed around a lot. How do you define it? But that's how Barna defines it. Uh, people who are, are born again, attend church at least once a month, and can get those very basic questions right. There's only 7%. Uh, and so we've gone, and really, I guess somebody could be a brand new believer and not get all those questions right. But somebody who's reading their Bible, attending a Bible-believing church, it's hard to see how they could get those very basic questions wrong. And so we've gone from 73% claiming to be Christian down to 7% having basic Christian beliefs and being part of a church. And so of every 10 people that you meet who say, I'm a Christian, probably only 1 in 10 actually is. Those are the, that's the world that we live in. Now, what, what is the issue? Why is this in a, such an issue in our society? Well, I believe it's one of the major reasons. It's a lack of appreciation for the importance of church. The importance of church. And we're going to talk about that today. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, and I'd encourage you to take out the white page in the middle of your bulletin. It has the scriptures written out there as well as the outline on the back are uh, study questions, and in our group, you'll have to do these on your own. We won't cover them during the Super Bowl party. <clears throat> Unless you really, uh, there's popular demand, I will do them, okay? But I'm not holding my breath. <clears throat> All right, back to the message. I get in trouble when I stray from my notes, so... Matthew 16, verse 18, uh, Jesus said, I tell you that you are Peter, talking to Peter, and on this rock, which is Peter's confession of faith, it was in the previous verse, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, will not overcome it. And so Jesus here tells us that he is the head of the church, he is establishing the church, he is the originator of the church, he's going to build his church, and his church is going to plunder the gates of hell. Hell is not going to be able to withstand the advance of the church of Jesus Christ. 
Acts 2.41. This is the day of Pentecost. Peter has preached a message. It says in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached, people believed the gospel, and they were added to the 120 believers who had been praying in the upper room uh, for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so they were added to the church in Jerusalem after they were water baptized and spirit baptized. And so that's how it is throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament. People are saved. They, were, they didn't just go off by themselves. They were added to the number of believers in that location. 1 John 4, 20 and 21 Apostle John says, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now, brothers and sisters, what's he talking about? He's talking about brothers and sisters, fellow believers in the church family. Can you love your brother and sister in the Lord without being part of a church family? It doesn't seem possible to me. I believe the answer is absolutely not. And so if somebody says that they love God, but they want nothing to do with other Christians, what's the common excuse? They're all hypocrites. I'm the only one, and I'm just me and Jesus, because everybody else is a hypocrite, so I'm not going to be part of any church that's just full of hypocrites. Anybody heard that before? Um, what does this verse say? Now, it's not me. It's the Bible. It says they're lying. You can't love God and not love brothers and sisters in a church family. There's something very wrong with that picture. True believers are always part of a local church. And so that's what we're going to talk about in this series, the importance of the church. Today, my message is entitled, God's Plan for the Church. Now, in the Bible, God's Word has many metaphors for the church. Uh, metaphors such as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, which we talked about uh, a few Sundays ago. The children of God, the city of God, and we can go on and on. But today we're going to look at the church as the flock of God. And that's why we have that picture in our, there's a background in our series. And so that's you up there, and me, okay? You can see which one you are, but um, those are sheep. It's a flock of sheep. And so today we're going to look at the church as a flock, as the flock of God. Now, why has God created the flock of God for every believer? So we're going to look at the benefits of being part of a church family, being part of the flock of God. First of all, you're protected in the church. Acts 20, 28 says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And so these words were spoken by the Apostle Paul to the leaders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Now Christ is the head of the church. He's the chief shepherd but the leaders of local churches are shepherds of the local flock. That's how the Bible describes it here. And so he's talking to the leaders and he's saying, God has made you overseers 
or shepherds of the church at Ephesus. Later in the passage, we don't have time to look at it, these shepherds are warned to be on the alert because Paul warns them that savage wolves are going to come to attack the church at Ephesus. And so he's saying that there's safety in the flock, but the shepherds need to watch out because there is danger outside the church. There is danger that would uh, come, evil that would come to attack the church. And so in the safety of the flock, in the safety of the church of God, there is protection for the flock of God. First of all, we're protected from Satan. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, we're going to look at a bunch of verses uh, in different passages today, so we'll have to briefly describe the context. We don't have time to read the whole passages. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 says, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And so these are the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. One of the members of the church had been involved in gross sexual sin. He was not repentant, and unfortunately, the church was being, in their minds, very gracious and loving by allowing him to continue to fellowship in the church. Well, Paul's instructions to the local shepherds here, the pastors, was to put the man out of the church. Here that is described as handing him over to Satan. You see, for a believer to be outside the church family, outside the protection of the church, was to be unprotected from Satan's attacks. And the purpose in this case, if we read the whole passage, was so that Satan's attacks on this unrepentant believer would cause him to go, oh boy, you know, many bad things are happening to me. I better repent and come back to the protection of the church family, to the safety of the church. And so this is throughout the New Testament. It's almost unthinkable for a person to be outside the protection of the church that's being uh, put into the hands of Satan, put into the uh, attack by evil. So in the safety of the church, you're protected by the Spirit of God and by God's shepherds from the attack of the evil one, Satan himself. Not only are you protected from Satan, but you're protected from wandering. James 5, 19 says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So what happens when a sheep wanders from the flock and from the shepherd? Just decides to take a Sunday stroll. Well, that wandering sheep is in a very dangerous situation. Does the sheep have any natural defense for enemies? Bah. You know, does a wolf get scared by a bah? No, you know. Uh, and so they're in a very dangerous situation. They need to get back to the flock as soon as possible, or they may very well lose their life they, to uh, any type of predator, to falling off a cliff, to not finding food to eat, captured by thieves. There's all kinds of dangers. Now, these verses in James instruct the church, uh, the flock of God, to go after those who wander from the truth of God's church. 
Uh, just as Jesus had a parable about going after the lost sheep, to go after them and to try to bring them back. Now, how is the wandering sheep, the wandering person, the wandering uh, here described? Well, he's described as a sinner, a sinner who's been deceived to wander from the church. And if this wandering person does not return, they're going to spiritually die and their sins will not be forgiven. And so if someone does wander away from the protection of the church flock, those in the church, the leaders and the other sheep in the flock should, should seek to bring them back. Now, some people refuse to come back, right? It doesn't mean you're going to bring everybody back and they're going to reap the fatal consequence of their actions if they wander from the church family. Now, what we're speaking of here is not going from one Bible-believing church to another Bible-believing church. I mean, God calls people to do that from time to time. What we're talking about here is wandering away from all of God's churches, wandering into sin, uh, or wandering to a church that's not a Bible-believing church would be the same thing, of course. So let's think about this flock of sheep metaphor a little more closely. Think about this question. Which sheep is most protected? The one who's in the middle of the flock, close to the shepherd, or the one who's straying out at the back part of the flock? Which sheep is most protected? The one in the middle, the one closest to the shepherd. That's obvious. How do you stay in the middle of the flock? Well, you stay in the middle of the flock simply by being involved in the essential aspects of church life. Uh, and by growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. If you're just barely connected, you just show up Christmas and Easter, you're wandering at the very back of the flock. Very dangerous position to be in. So in this series, we're going to talk about the five essential aspects of church life in the rest of this series. And uh, let's just suffice it to say for now that some of the important ones, regular attendance at, at, at church is important. Being connected, worshiping together, praying together with God's family, being taught, and also involvement in a life group where people can pray for you. And we'll talk about more about that in a few minutes. Uh, really essential aspects of being protected in God's church. Uh, both of these are spoken of in the Bible as being important, being part of a large group and being part of a small group where you get to know people, and you can relate. Well, not only are you protected in the church of God, in God's flock, you are also provided for in the church. Famous Psalm, Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And so what do shepherds in God's flock do? Well, they provide for the sheep the food that they need. In this case, the psalmist speaks of green pastures and quiet waters, which is obviously the things that a, a sheep needs. And so God provides for the flock so that they don't lack anything that they need. And where are the sheep provided for? Well, it's only when they're in the flock. If they wander away on their own, they're not going to be provided for. They're going to get lost and they're going to suffer the consequences. So how are we provided for in the church? Well, first of all, you're taught God's word. 
Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Underline that word, one another. With all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Now, the New Testament is filled. I didn't have time to do a search this week on how many times the word one another is used. It's used throughout the New Testament. Now, you cannot obey a command such as this, teach and admonish one another, nor can you benefit from a command such as this unless you're part of a church family. If you're out on your own, there is no other, you know, to do it to one another or for somebody to benefit you. And so this verse here speaks of teaching God's word uh, so that his word lives in our hearts and lives. And so the church family provides spiritual food for each member through the teaching of God's word. That happens in a, a number of places. It happens on Sunday mornings right now, teaching you God's word. It happens in the growth class on Sunday mornings. It happens for the children in the children's ministry, for the youth, for the young adults, for uh other people in the life groups that happen throughout the week. And there are things that are coming in the future, even other opportunities we'll have for you to learn God's word. And so each of us should daily be reading God's word and praying, learning on our own, but we cannot be fully provided for on our own. Um, when somebody tries to go, the, it's just me and Jesus root, they go astray. They go astray in their understanding of the word. They go astray uh, in many different directions, and the end result will be spiritual death. And so we need each other in order to learn and to teach others. God's word, in fact, tells us that each believer should both be taught and be a teacher of others. And so God wants us to learn so that we can teach others. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So you are taught God's word in the church family, in the flock of God. You also benefit from spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12 was written to the church at Corinth, a local church there. It describes the benefits of spiritual gifts for the church. Spiritual gifts are given to each member of the church so that they can minister to one another. And we talked about this in a series that we did before the last one called Living in the Spirit. And so let's just briefly talk about a spiritual gift, uh, the gift of healing. This principle applies to all the gifts. We'll just talk about the gift of healing. Now, it's a common perception or misperception that everyone's prayers are equally effective in every situation. And... So somebody might think, you know, if I pray for myself, I'm covered. Why should I need anybody else to pray for me? I mean, their prayer is better than mine? I think not. I'll just pray for myself and that, that will be enough. This thinking really is unbiblical. It's false. It's not what the Bible teaches. God gives specific spiritual gifts to certain people to minister to other people. If you're sick, you need to be prayed for someone who has spiritual gift of healing. The Bible says that there are such gifts. 
And if you're in a church, you make your need known, you have other people praying for you, those that have the gift of healing will pray for you and you will receive your healing. If you're outside the church, you have absolutely no chance of another person praying for you and receiving the gift that are operating within the church family, within the flock. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, that the gifts are given for the common good, for the good of all the sheep in the flock, for the good of all the people that are in the church. Now, those who are even regular attenders at church do not always receive the provision that God has for them in the church. So in order to receive the benefits of God's word as you're taught, obviously we need to listen, we need to understand, and then we need to obey it. We need to apply it in our lives. And as we do that, we receive the benefit that God has for us as being part of the flock of God. In order to receive the benefits of spiritual gifts in the church, we need to let our needs be known to other people so that other people can pray for us. And come forward at the end of the service uh, so people can pray for you. I don't believe that we take advantage of that enough. You know, in many cases, we could have a lot more people up front. You say, well, there's only a couple people praying. Well, if you all come forward and there's, we're here till 2 in the afternoon, we'll add some other, there's other people that can pray for you too. We'll add more people. And so we need to take advantage of those times to be prayed for uh, by people of faith so that God can meet our needs as he desires to do. Now, God seems to best meet the needs of those who are meeting the needs of others. The principle in the Bible is give and you shall receive. And we apply that to financial giving. It's true in finances, but it's true in in everything in the Christian life. And as we are giving to others, obeying the one another's in the Bible, then God will minister to us and bless us in turn. So in God's family, in the flock of God, in the church of God, we're protected, we're provided for, and finally we're guided through the church. Psalm 23 says, He guides me, the shepherd, along the right paths for his name's sake. And so the shepherd guides the sheep along the right path. It's the right path for the flock as a whole, and it's the right path for each individual sheep. Now, the, the, uh, the fact that there is a right path implies that there is a wrong path or wrong paths as well. And we don't want to get on a wrong path. You don't want to get on a wrong path. And so through the church, God will guide your life individually and within the church on the right path. How does this happen in the church? Well, you are prayed for. This kind of overlaps with spiritual gifts, but we'll look at it this way as well. Ephesians 6, 18 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying, underlined, for all the Lord's people. And so prayer is an essential aspect of the church. In this verse, we're commanded to be alert, to keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. And so the believers in a church family are to pray for one another. One of the aspects is praying for people we know to have wisdom in their decisions. You know, somebody comes up, they have a, have a difficult decision to make. And oftentimes we just say, well, that's between me and Jesus. Well, how about 
letting somebody else know you have a difficult decision to make so they can pray for you. Now, you have to make the decision. They're not going to make the decision for you, but they can pray for you that God would give you the wisdom to make that decision. And in that way, the church family can help guide your life. One of the best ways to take advantage of the prayers of others is to get involved in a life group. I mean, even at our size today, to have practically 150 people associated with the church, and it's, uh, it's difficult to know 150 people and what's going on in their life. That's why we have small groups. When you're in a small group, you get to know everybody. You share your prayer requests. You get to know what's going on in people's lives so that we can pray for one another and God can guide us in that way. So we encourage you in that respect as well. Not only are you prayed for in the church, but you are discipled for spiritual growth. Ephesians 4 says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So here we're switching the metaphor just a bit um, to the body of Christ, but I believe it's important. It also applies to the flock. As a believer, you need to grow spiritually. And that can only happen through the church here spoken of as the body of Christ. So each believer, as each believer in the church grows and helps others to grow, they are discipled. Now what does it mean to be discipled? We're talking about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus told us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, a disciple is a baptized believer who is being taught to obey some of the things that Jesus commanded. Now, Richard's giving me an eye. So, you know, everything that I've commanded, that's what the Great Commission says. You're to obey everything that Jesus or God has commanded. And so to be discipled is not just to know what God's Word says. It's to know and obey God's Word. And that happens best through accountability when you know other people. And they can speak into your life. They know when you have trials, when you're going through a tough time, when you're struggling, they can pray for you, they can hold you accountable, and you can grow spiritually. And as you grow spiritually, every aspect of your life will be blessed, and you will be more of a blessing to others as well. Now let's think about the process of spiritual growth with respect to a flock of sheep. A lamb joins the flock when they are born. But they're just a little, a little lamb, just as a new believer is a spiritually, as uh, a spiritual baby, and that little lamb is protected in the flock. That little lamb is provided for. That little lamb is guided until they grow up and become mature. And what's expected of a mature sheep? Well, two things, at least two things. Uh, first of all, they are to reproduce and make more little lambs. Right? Or else, eventually, there will be no flock. Secondly, they help the new lambs to grow up and mature. And so in the same way, new believers in the church, they're to be protected. They're to be provided for. They're to be guided until they mature in the Lord. And mature believers are expected to be effective witnesses, leading to 
new believers being added to the flock of God. And likewise, the mature believers are to, to be teachers and to help those who are less mature to grow and mature. And that's the cycle of life, a flock of sheep, a flock of God in the church as well. And as that happens, on the individual level, what happens on the church level? Well, on the church level, then the whole church grows uh, numerically and spiritually, becoming more mature and continuing to add new people to the flock of God. And so God's plan for the local church is for it to continue to grow, to impact the region in which it's located for the glory of God. And uh, we look forward to Life Church uh, continuing to grow and impacting the St. Louis area for Jesus. Now, to have a relationship with Jesus, the Good Shepherd, to begin that individual relationship, you need to admit that you've sinned, uh, believe in Jesus Christ and commit your life to Him. So let's bow our heads right now. If you've never prayed a prayer like this before, or you'd like to recommit your life, I'd encourage you to pray along with me. Father, today I admit that I've sinned. I've done wrong things. I've been wandering far from the flock of God. I ask you to forgive me. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, that my sins might be forgiven. Come into my life. I commit myself to following you as my Lord and Savior all the days of my life in your church. In Jesus' name we pray. And for those of us who are believers, let's pray as well. Father, we just thank you for the church that you love and that you died to establish. We thank you that you that we have the privilege of being part of this local church here at Life Church, God. We're grateful for your protection, for your provision, for your guidance in this church. God, help us to better understand your plan for church so that we can help others be added to the church. Show us, God, how to reach those who think they are Christians but really are not. There are so many Guide us to reach those who are in churches that are not helping people grow, that are not preaching your word as well. We pray that you'd help each one of us to be gripped with a passion and a burden to fulfill this 2017 plus one challenge. It's a very small challenge, really. But help us, God, to be able to fulfill it and even go beyond it, to have people added to this church family as we reach out to them. Help us to be more effective witnesses. We pray that you'd motivate us to increase our involvement in the church so that we're not lagging at the out at the fringes, but we're really involved so that you can use us to help others grow spiritually and mature. And so we look forward to what you're going to do in Life Church, this local church right here in the year 2017, as we follow together the Good Shepherd Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.